Part 6 of Rebels of the Red Planet by Charles Louis Fontenay, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rebels of the Red Planet, Chapter 11 The Xanthi Desert stretched red and barren on all sides of the plodding couple, the sands unbroken by the form of plant or stone or any living thing, all the way to the tight horizon of Mars. Above them the small glittering sun slid down the copper-hued sky slowly toward the west. It was remarkable, thought Maya, how smooth and flat the desert looked from the air, and how rough and rolling it was when one had to walk across the packed sand. They had been walking for hours, and despite the gentle gravity of Mars, she was getting very tired. "'It's farther than I thought,' said Newell his voice distorted by the Mars helmet speaker. Distances on the chart are deceptive. We may not reach ultra-virus by night." Maya did not answer. Again, as she had many weeks before, she was in the grip of a sensation that this desert through which they walked was only a surface thing, a shimmering mask to the reality that lay behind it. That reality seemed very deep, very significant and she felt that she was on the verge of comprehending it, but could not quite grasp it. She was a little irritated at Newell for speaking when he did. If his voice had not interrupted her probing emotions, she felt, she might have broken through to that reality she sensed. "'Newell,' she said, giving it up, "'I'm going to have to rest a while. If we don't make it by night, we don't make it. There's always tomorrow, and I'm tired.' Reluctantly, he consented, and they sat down together on the sand. Newell pulled a chart out of his Marsuit pocket and began to study it. Maya lay back, clasped her hands behind her helmet, and closed her eyes, gratefully feeling the tired muscles relax and the perspiration that bathed her begin to dissolve in the gentle circulation of the Marsuit's temperature control system. "'Maya!' exclaimed Newell suddenly. "Look." we're going to be rescued!" She sat up and looked in the direction of his pointing finger. On the horizon to the northeast was a cloud of dust, too placid and stationary to be a sandstorm. They stood up, and Newell spoke hastily into his helmet radio on the conventional emergency band. "'Attention ground-car! Attention ground-car! We're afoot and in trouble! We're afoot, due southwest from your position!' Help, please! Attention, ground-car!" There was no radio reply in the ensuing silence, but all at once it was as though a deep and alien voice spoke within the depths of Maya's mind. "'We see you!' Startled, she looked curiously at Newell, but he evidently had not had the same experience. He was chattering into the radio frantically again. "'They're evidently not tuned in on the emergency band, Newell she said to him. But they're coming almost directly toward us. They're bound to see us soon, if they haven't already." "'That's true,' said Newell, and added sourly. "'But they ought to be tuned in. It's required by law.'" The dust-cloud moved closer slowly, too slowly for a ground-car. They were able to discern a dark nucleus below and in front of it. Then Newell said, in the name of space! It isn't a ground-car, Maya! It's a band of Martians! 
Let's get out of here. He started to walk on swiftly, but Maya stood her ground. Don't be silly, she said. Martians won't hurt us. I was raised among them. They may not hurt us, but why wait for them? he demanded, and there was a touch of hysterical fright to his tone. Let's go on, Maya. We may very well have gotten off course in trying to go straight to Ultravirus, replied Maya logically. That may be why we haven't sighted it yet. The Martians will know where it is, and meeting them may prevent us from getting lost in the desert." Newell subsided, but she could see from the expression on his face that he was in a blue funk. This puzzled her. She could not understand why anyone would be afraid of Martians. They were huge, and ugly, and alien, but they were not inimical to humans. When the Martians came near enough, Maya waved her arms at them and started off to meet them, Newell following her at a little distance. The Martians changed course slightly and came toward them. Maya called childhood memories to her aid. She turned her helmet speaker to its maximum volume and spoke to them in their own language, in the deepest tones possible to her. Children of the past, we seek that place in the desert which is called ultra-virus by humans, she said. Can you show us the direction in which we must travel?" The Martians gathered around her, towering over her. There were four of them. Their huge chests moved slowly, mixing oxygen from their great humps with the surrounding air. Their thin arms hung limp at their sides, and their big ears were pricked forward toward her. Their huge, dark eyes seemed to look through her and beyond her. "'The sun moves toward this place. But there are no humans there now," boomed one of the Martians. Nothing lives there now except small animals in the walls and corridors. This we know, answered Maya. We wish to go there that we may communicate with other humans and have them come and get us. She wanted to say that the supplies of oxygen in their Marsuit tanks were inadequate to take them anywhere other than ultra-virus but she did not know how to say this properly in the Martian language. But, to her astonishment, the Martian answered as though she had said it. "'If the breathing chemicals which you carry are at such a depleted stage, you cannot chance going astray,' said the creature. "'Rather than tell you the direction of this place, we shall accompany you there.' Throughout this conversation Newell had been standing at Maya's side, his face bearing an expression of mingled curiosity, irritation, and awe. Maya turned to him. "'The Martians say they will go with us to Ultra-Virus, so we won't get lost,' she told him. "'No!' he exclaimed vehemently. "'Tell them we don't want them along. Tell them just to show us the way, and we'll go alone.' "'Don't be ridiculous,' replied Maya coldly, and indicated to the Martian that they were ready to accompany the group. They moved off together toward the west, the four Martians and the two humans. Maya, feeling somewhat relieved that now they had expert help in reaching their goal, attempted to talk to Newell, but he refused to answer, except in monosyllables. He was angry that she had agreed for the Martians to accompany them, and obviously was still very nervous at their presence. So she talked instead with the Martian who had acted as spokesman for the group. His name, she learned, was Krill. 
The place to which you go lies under an evil atmosphere, said Quirrell. The human who abode there many years attempted to do things wrongly. We were there in the season before this one, answered Maya. This was just before that human left. I already had read this in you, said Quirrell. I also read in you that, as a child, you lived among us who are children of the past. Therefore, perhaps you knew before I spoke that an evil atmosphere remains at this place and has not yet been washed away by time." "'No, I was not taught such matters as a child,' answered Maya. "'But tell me, it is true that this man tried to do evil things by human standards, but were Goat Hennessy's genetic experiments also evil by Martian standards?' "'You do not read what I have said quite correctly,' replied Quirrell. The evil atmosphere is left by the man because what he did was evil by his own standards. I said only that he attempted to do things wrongly." "'What do you mean?' asked Maya. "'To explain to you, I must speak to you about things about which you already know partially,' answered Quirrell. "'Before you were born, the human you call Goat was one of a group of humans who sought ways to make humans independent of the spaceships, which bring materials from Earth to Mars and create small islands of terrestrial conditions in the midst of the Martian environment. When they met the natural resistance of those humans who gained material advantage through operation of the spaceships, they came into the desert to be free to work. Seeking to get far from the men who resisted their work, this group of humans went to that area which you know as the Icaria Desert. Some of us who are children of the past live at that place sometimes, and these humans sought our help, knowing that we possess many remnants of the knowledge that our forefathers had. But we had difficulty helping them. They were attempting to follow two courses simultaneously, and both of them were wrong. I know something of those two courses," said Maya. Some of them were trying to develop human extrasensory powers, so that materials could be teleported from Earth, and the others were trying to change the human body physiologically, so that humans could live under Martian conditions. But you say they were both wrong? In each way that they followed, they sought to make humans partly like us, the children of the past," said Krill. We have the power to communicate with our minds over a distance, and some of us are able to transport things with our minds over a distance. We do not need your rich terrestrial air, because we take oxygen directly from the soil and store it in our bodies for combustion purposes. But humans and the children of the past are different forms of life, and they cannot be made so much alike. It is possible for humans to develop mental powers similar to ours, but this course would leave them dependent upon importing materials from Earth, even though this would be by mind transmission instead of by spaceship. The other course they followed could not succeed, because the human body cannot be altered so that it is able to take oxygen from the soil and store it for later use." "'But you're wrong!' exclaimed Maya. Goat Hennessy had succeeded in developing some humans who could live without oxygen in the air for a time. His experiments were imperfect, it's true, but they were able to do that. The imperfect humans that the human called Goat had developed 
were not what he thought," replied Krill. We tried to help the humans to find the right course, but they could not understand us well. We tried to show them, by charts and example, that the proper way to adapt a human to Martian conditions was a different way. Because Earth is nearer the Sun, humans have a possibility that we do not have. What we tried to show these humans was a method whereby they could change the embryonic physiology so that the adult human would be able to use the energy of solar radiations directly, instead of depending on the energy of combustion of those chemicals you call oxygen and carbon. This makes the body independent of both air and food, and has the advantage, also, of giving a far superior regenerative power to the bodily tissues. The human, goat, for reasons that are not known, stole some of our charts and two of the pregnant female humans, and continued his work at this place to which we are going. But he thought he was still attempting to change the physiology so that oxygen could be stored, and therefore his experiments went wrongly. But he had your charts, objected Maya. Even though he was not making the alterations he thought he was, how could he go wrong if he followed the charts? The charts showed the changes to be made in the embryonic cells, but they could not show the method whereby the changes are made," replied Krill. The human, goat, attempted to make these changes by mechanical, surgical methods, but these are too crude to be successful. The method we utilize to make such changes which is the only right method, is to focus the mental forces upon the embryo. I believe you would call it psychokinesis." Maya was vastly excited at this revelation. Then Goat's oldest experiments, the ones he called Brute and Adam, were actually the ones on whom you children of the past had performed the embryonic changes, she exclaimed. They must have been sons of the pregnant women he kidnapped. That's why they were more successful than the others." "'That is true,' said Krill. "'We had completed the change on only one of the two, therefore only that one would develop into an adult who could live in complete independence of air and food if necessary. The other one would never be able to do it for more than a short period without returning to terrestrial conditions.' The party now came over a long, low ridge and the mass of ultra-virus rose from the desert ahead of them. The sun was near setting, and the black walls of the stronghold huddled sullenly under its crimson rays. The Martians left them here, and Newell and Maya went on alone toward their goal. Newell expelled an audible sigh of relief. "'I'm glad we're free of those monsters,' he said. "'I don't understand how you could carry on a conversation with such creatures, Maya.' It sounded like a series of animal grunts and cries to me. I caught an occasional word, like oxygen and psychokinesis. What were you talking about?" He was telling me about Goat Hennessy's experiments, and how they differed from the rebels' experiments before Goat came to Ultravirus," answered Maya. "'That kind of talk serves no good purpose,' said Newell irritably. "'The rebel movement has been broken now and there's no point in thinking about the illegal things they tried to do." They came down the slope and approached the southern airlock of Ultravirus. The airlock was still sealed. 
Newell activated it, and they went through it into the big building. It was dark inside. Newell fumbled around a wall and found a light switch. He pressed it, but nothing happened. The electrical system isn't operating, he said. We'll have to use our Marsuit torches. He switched on his flashlight. It cast a long beam down the dusty corridor. Far ahead of them, a small animal scurried across the faint light and vanished into the darkness. Newell checked his atmosphere dial. The oxygen in here is all right, he said. The air has been maintained, anyhow. We can take off our helmets. They took off the Mars helmets and walked down the corridor. They checked each side door, looking for the communications room, but found only empty chambers or abandoned rooms in which books, papers, and broken furniture were scattered in complete disorganization. It took them nearly an hour to find the communications room, and there they met disappointment. Ultra-virus radio transmitter and receiver had been dismantled. There was nothing there but a jumble of broken tubes, discarded parts, and bare wire ends dangling from the walls. Nothing but an overturned table and two bent metal chairs. "'That settles that,' said Newell, more philosophically than Maya would have expected. "'Our only hope is to find a ground-car.' That necessitated another search, but at last they found the motor-pool. And there were three ground-cars, all in various stages of breakdown or dismantlement. "'It looks like we'll have to walk, Newell,' said Maya. Newell shook his head. "'I checked the chart carefully,' he said. "'The oxygen supply of a Marsuit won't take us either back to the Canfell farm or to Ophir, even with extra tanks. We're just going to have to cannibalize two of these machines and repair us a ground-car.' "'But, Newell, how long will that take?' "'I don't know,' he admitted. "'It looks like it may be quite a job. I expect it will take two or three weeks.' and that's the only way we're going to get out of here." He looked at her speculatively. "'It's a shame we aren't already married,' he said. "'This would provide us with a honeymoon, of a sort, out here by ourselves in the desert.' "'Well, we aren't,' she said flatly. "'And we won't be until we get back to Mars City.' "'That's true,' he said. Well, the only thing we can do for tonight is to have supper and find the rooms that Gota signed us when we were here before. I hope he left some beds intact in those, or some of the other rooms. If not, we may have some uncomfortable nights ahead of us. 12. The two dark Kensingtons and happy Thurbelow walked along one of the pathways between the vats, happy trailing a bit behind. Somewhere near them, they knew, shadow accompanied them. The place was dim, with the moist dimness of a swamp. The source of the light that filtered through the faint mist and seemed to permeate the air was not discernible, and the roof of this underground world was lost in the darkness above them. The placid surface of the water gleamed vaguely in the vats they passed, and the pale green tangle of vegetation rose above and around them, sometimes drooping over the paths like skinny arms that sought to detain them. "'What I don't understand,' said Dark the Younger, "'is that our memories coincide exactly, up to a point which you say is a time twenty-five years ago.' "'My memories are just as genuine as you say yours are. They aren't something someone told me, 
but real memories of things that happened to me, things I felt and did. If they're both genuine sets of memories, how can it be explained? How are we the same person, who has somehow split into two distinct individuals? I can only guess at the explanation, but I have a theory," answered Old Beard. You are much younger than I am. I would estimate that you're twenty-five years younger than I am. My memories are consecutive and complete. I remember not only the earlier things you say you remember, but the events of these past twenty-five years, without a break. You say you suffered a period of amnesia, and your next consecutive memory is of being with Martians in the Icaria Desert. That would appear to give you an advantage in claiming to be the real Dark Kensington," agreed Dark with a smile. But if you are, who am I? How is it that I remember being Dark Kensington? It's entirely possible that, for some reason, my earlier memories were grafted onto you as your own," replied Old Beard. I don't know how this would be done, perhaps through very deep and extensive hypnosis. The Martians, as well as we can tell anything about them at all, are experts in such mental fields. A relic of the ancient science, they're legended to have had when their civilizations covered Mars. I worked with Martians very closely for long periods during the early days of the Rebellion, the Phoenix, as you say they call it now, and they may very well have recorded my memory pattern through some means I don't know anything about, and for reasons I can't imagine." "'That sounds reasonable,' conceded Dark. But that still leaves unanswered the questions, who am I, and what's happened to my memories of the past twenty-five years?" "'I'm afraid I can't answer that,' replied Old Beard. In the dimness ahead of them they discerned a group of nude toughs approaching, swaggering down the path. They turned aside and found a recess in the vegetation in which they could wait until the toughs passed and went on their way. The toughs were aggressive and insensately brutal, and a meeting with them could only mean trouble. Happy's explained the situation here as well as he could, but I'm afraid it wasn't a very adequate explanation said Dark, as they huddled in the shadowed recess. Could you tell me more about it, and explain how you happen to be here?" Happy is very intelligent for a jelly, but none of the jellies are exceptionally bright," answered Old Beard, with a touch of affection in his voice. I'll outline it to you as briefly as I can. As your memories, or transplanted memories, indicate, I was one of a group of Martian colonists who joined forces to work at what, at first, appeared to be a theoretical and fantastic project, the development of the ability to live under natural Martian conditions, without dependence on the regular importation of extremely expensive imports from Earth. As you know, this project very shortly began to lose its fantastic qualities and appeared to be definitely within the realm of possible realization. Because of the differing background and orientation of those of us who attempted this project, two approaches were adopted. One, based on advancing terrestrial research into the field of extrasensory perception, was aimed at developing telepathic and telekinetic powers so that food, oxygen, machinery, and other essentials could be teleported directly from Earth into the Martian domes, without dependence on the space lines. The other, based on more orthodox science, 
was aimed at genetic development of a human type that could live without these importations, on native Martian food and in the Martian atmosphere. As you know, the government banned these experiments, and we retreated into the desert to carry them on despite the ban. From what you tell me of the extent of your memories, what you do not know is the reason behind the ban, which we discovered, or at least I did, only after we had been betrayed and the government had raided and broken up our experimental colony. The space-lines, as one might have guessed, were responsible. They saw that the success of the experiments would destroy their lucrative business. These space-lines, led by the Mars Corporation, which later absorbed the others and gained a monopoly, brought political pressure to bear and got the project banned. I had heard reports that a great many of my colleagues escaped and formed a rebel organization that carried on the work secretly and illegally, but I was never able to learn details of it until you came and told me of the activities in which you have been engaged. You see, I haven't been out of these caves in a quarter of a century." Shadow appeared at the recess to report to them that the Tufts had passed on. How he did it, Dark was unable to determine surely, for he could hear no word spoken. Either Shadow communicated by subtle gestures, or by tones beyond Dark's powers of hearing. But both Old Beard and Happy seemed to understand him readily. "'How do you happen to be here, Old Beard?' asked Dark, as they left the recess and resumed their progress down the walkways. "'I was captured when the government broke up the experimental groups,' answered Old Beard. I was the leader of the section of the experiments dealing with extrasensory perception, and, instead of executing me at once, they tried to persuade me to continue this work for the government along specific lines and under supervision. I refused, because I knew that anything I helped them develop would not be used for the benefit of the Martian colonists, but for greater profits for the space lines. At last I was able to escape into these underground caverns, where they grow food plants hydroponically and sell them to supplement the produce of the dome farms and the gardens in the dome cities. These caverns are extensive, and, with the friendship and help of the jellies, I've evaded discovery for twenty-five years." "'Just who and what are the jellies?' asked Dark. I haven't been able to get a very satisfactory answer to that question from Happy." "'They're human experimental animals,' answered Old Beard. The terrestrial food plants grown hydroponically and sold in the dome cities actually are a supplemental sideline to the real purpose of this place. Mars Corp is conducting its own experiments here, with a crew of expert geneticists. What Mars Corp is trying to do is to breed native Martian plants that will grow in the open lowlands without expensive oxygenation and irrigation, that are not poisonous to humans and can be used for food. At the same time, they're approaching the problem from the other side, and the jellies are men and women whose glandular structure has been altered in an effort to make their physiology more receptive to native Martian vegetation. If they succeed, of course, Mars Corp has just as completely a monopoly over such a food supply as it does over imports from Earth, but at considerably less expense. And the Tufts? They're human experimental animals, too, based on a different type of glandular alteration. 
They're neither as docile nor as intelligent as the jellies, so they can't be used for slave labor as the jellies can. About the only way they're ever used is as occasional goon squads to terrorize the jellies and keep them in line. "'You've been here twenty-five years and have never been able to escape?' asked Dark incredulously. "'This place isn't guarded,' replied Old Beard with a wry smile. "'They don't have to guard it. All they have to guard are the supply-room where the Mars-suits are kept and the motor-pool of ground-cars. This place is in the middle of the desert of Candor, and no one can live in the Martian desert without oxygen.' They came now to one of the walls of the underground cavern and Old Beard led them suddenly into a fissure that was well concealed from the walkways by a tangled screen of vegetation. They stumbled along a narrow passageway for a few feet and emerged into a rude shaft, around the walls of which a roughly chiseled and steep stairway led upward into pitch darkness. Here Old Beard halted. "'When I told you there's no way of escape here, it was not that I haven't tried many times he said to Dark. This shaft leads up into the walls of the structure above, above, although it is still underground, and I have been up there often at night. It has long been my hope that I might be able to get a Marsuit or a ground-car and make my escape, but they are kept locked up and always guarded against the jellies and the tufts. I want to take you up and give you an idea of the place now and later perhaps you will have some ideas to contribute. Happy and Shadow will stay down here until we get back." Old Beard mounted the steep steps slowly, and Dark followed at his heels. Although the bottom of the well was lighted with the same dim light as that which spread throughout the entire underground area, there was no light at all higher up, and they had to feel their way carefully lest they fall off the narrow steps. At the top, Old Beard stopped, and Dark bumped sharply into him. "'I'm going to move down the space between the walls,' Old Beard whispered. "'Hold on to my hand and follow me. But don't say anything or make any more noise than you can help, because anyone beyond the wall may be able to hear you.' They moved ahead. The way was very narrow, very dark, and very difficult and frequently was choked with ventilator pipes or tangles of wiring. They had gone some forty or fifty feet when Old Beard stopped. By Old Beard's movements Dark knew he was working at something. Then a section of ventilator pipe came away from a ventilator grill, and faint light illuminated the space in which they crouched. In this dimness Old Beard gestured to Dark to look through the ventilator. Peering out, Dark saw that they were near the ceiling of a large, high-ceilinged room. In it, under glaring lights, a group of half a dozen white-clad men were working with knives and other instruments on the body of a man, either anesthetized or dead, which lay on a surgical table. Old Beard put his face against the grill next to Dark's, and the two men watched the scene below for a few moments. Then one of the men around the table raised his head, revealing a thin face, with watery blue eyes and a straggly goatee. The two men inside the wall gasped as one man. "'Father!' The single loud word was torn from Dark's throat without his volition, without his actually realizing he had spoken. 
The heads of the men in the room jerked up at the cry, and they looked around and at each other, with puzzled expressions. Old Beard clapped a firm hand over Dark's mouth and hissed in his ear, "'Fool! Let's get out of here!' As quietly as possible they made their way back. Through the ventilator behind them came the murmur of querulous voices. When they had climbed back down the stairs, and, with Happy and Shadow, made their way back through the fissure, Old Beard fixed penetrating eyes on Dark, and said, "'I told you to keep quiet up there! What was that exclamation all about?' "'It's something very strange,' murmured Dark, his face thoughtful and bemused. "'But you evidently recognize that man, too. Who is he?' "'Yes, I know him very well.' answered Old Beard, with deep bitterness in his tone. That's Goat Hennessy. But that's the first time I've seen him in twenty-five years. He must have just come here recently. Goat Hennessy? I heard of him when I was in Mars City. Goat Hennessy was one of my most trusted friends, said Old Beard. If you bear my earlier memories, I'm surprised you didn't recognize him as Goat Hennessy, too. I recognized him as someone else," said Dark in a low voice. "'We worked together,' went on Old Beard. I was a leader in the effort to solve our problem through extrasensory perception, and he was the major scientist in the group attempting to solve it by genetic change. We worked together, and we went into the desert together with the others, when the government banned our experiments. But Goat was the man who sold out. He betrayed us to the government. For what price, I don't know. And when government agents raided us and broke up our organization and captured me, Goat Hennessy kidnapped my young and pregnant wife, and I never saw her again. I'm glad Goat Hennessy is here, because now I can get to him. And when I can reach him, I'm going to kill him. I'd like to kill him as slowly and painfully as he killed the heart inside of me. As Old Beard spoke these last words, his face was tense, his fists clenched, and a somber fire burned in his pale eyes. Then, slowly, the fire died out, and he turned his eyes, once more cool and rational, a little quizzical, on Dark. "'Didn't you call him Father?' he asked. "'Yes,' said Dark in a low voice. "'But I'd rather not talk about it right now.' He looked at Old Beard and seemed to be riddling himself with an effort of a deep introversion. There was one thing that I remembered as a result of seeing Goat Hennessy, said Dark in a firmer voice. This place isn't too far from a place in the Xanthi Desert where Goat conducted some significant experiments. If he left any of his records there, and I'm thinking of some in particular, they might go a long way towards solving the problem we've all been working on for so long. So now I know what to do next. I'm going to Ultravirus." Old Beard smiled sadly. "'Have you forgotten we can't get out of this place?' he reminded. "'We can't get either the Mars suits or the ground cars.' It was Dark's turn to smile. I believe you said there aren't any guards on the airlocks to stop one from walking out at night," he said. "'That's true, but there's something you don't know,' continued Dark. "'You were wondering at the basis of the regenerative power that permitted me to revive here after being shot in the stomach with a heat-gun. 
I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, it's something that also permits me to live without oxygen. Happy can testify that I was fully alive and conscious under water. I discovered, before I was shot, that I can operate just as well outside, in the Martian atmosphere, without a helmet. That's why Goat's records may solve our problem. So tonight I'll leave this place and go to Ultravirus. If there are any Marsuit and ground cars left there, I'll come back here with them and you and Happy and Shadow can escape with me. If not, you may have to wait a while longer. But I'll be back. End of chapter 12